Hello, everyone. My name is Philip Palumbo, the host of the Palumbo Pulse, where we interview some of the most successful portfolio managers, economists, and market strategists. Today, we're looking to have with us Andrew Clinton to give us an update on the municipal bond market. So, Andrew, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So, a lot has happened this year with yield and interest rates, as we all know. So, give me an update. Are municipal bonds a buy at these levels? Yeah. So, ultimately, you know, taking a step back, obviously there's been a lot of uncertainty and turmoil in the fixed income market over the last two years. Uh, fixed income investors know that better than anyone, ourselves included and our clients as well. Uh, this year was supposed to be the year of the bond market, candidly. Um, we were of that view as well, that this was gonna be a really uh, constructive year for bonds. And then September and October changed a lot of our viewpoints and con concerns, I should say, rose quite considerably. Um, and so, you know, we had um, a significant rise in interest rates over a short period of time that caused the market a, a bit of agita. Uh, we continue to stay true to our conviction, which is we felt like the economic environment was moving in a direction that would be uh, constructive for fixed income investors. Uh, we were of the view that, and this continues to be the case still today, we've shared that a, a probably about a year ago with you and your, um, your team, as well as your clients in terms of our outlook for inflation. Um, and and so I think it's important to take a minute to talk about the impact of inflation, especially as it relates to fixed income. Inflation is the primary driver of returns as it relates to longer duration fixed income. That seems to be an obvious statement. But there's been a lot of talk and concern and, um, and I would say consternation around the impact of the fiscal components of what we're seeing, i.e. outstanding treasury supply or new issuance and things of that sort and whether there's enough demand and historically, what we find is that inflation is, a, as I said, 70% of the driving force behind returns in right. fixed income on a correlation basis, whereas fiscal is more like 20% historically. So inflation continues to be the most important factor. And if you look at where inflation is today versus where inflation was just over a year ago, you know, inflation's down 65% since the highs back in August of last year, in July of last year. And so the decline has been material, it's been significant, it's continuing. Um, and if you take a look at the owner's equivalent rent component, that is shelter as it relates to inflation, um, Campbell Harvey at Duke University is a professor who, uh, who wrote great, a great deal of information around the correlation of the inverted yield curve and, and recessions. His quote recently was, and we thought it was very relevant, which is why I'm sharing it today, that if you remove the owner's equivalent rent, which contributed 7% to the CPI data that just recently was released, 7% uh, positive on a year-over-year -year right. basis. And you actually back out that number since it's a lagging indicator and put in real data as, as it relates to rent renewals, as well as the actual um, degree of appreciation in home prices. What you end up finding is rent renewals are flat to down, depending on where you are geographically in the country, as well as housing. So it's not 7% higher over year-over-year. -year. It's more like 0% over year-over-year. But if you if just use a 1% number in that CPI data, as opposed to 7%, right. inflation is not 3.2%, it's really 1.5 to 1.8%. I guess right? my only pushback on that is, yeah, sure. when, I, when I hear people talk about that is, but the reality is, is that this is the data point that we've been using for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. and, and it is what it is. And we could also argue on the upside, when in, inflation hit 8, 9%, it was probably 12, 13, 14%. If you take out the the, the 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 same type of rules you're talking about on the downside, if we do it on the upside, so it, I think that the valid point about what you're saying is more about 
where we think inflation is going to go because eventually because it's a lagging part it's a lagging part of that actual indicator so it's a very high probability that we'll get to two percent or even lower than that because of what you were saying does that make sense well uh, i would characterize it a little differently we're not suggesting you remove it what we're suggesting is removing it gives you an indication of where we're headed so right. if you think about it in the context of where CPI is today at 3.2% and you're wondering where CPI will be six months from now, a year from now, all you have to do is back out those numbers and that's where we're going to be. So the reality is, and what we believe in terms of where inflation will be a year from now, is we're going to be back at, if not below, the 2% target of the Federal Reserve, which is why the, the fixed income market, specifically treasuries, have already priced in roughly 100 basis points of Fed rate cuts by a year, a year from now, right? Because the market is implying that, hey, the Fed has already tightened financial conditions too much. They're already going to be able to achieve that 2% target, if not be through it. And so therefore, current level of interest rates should be lower than where they are currently. Um, and that is what we're anticipating. Also yes. worth noting, by the way, if you're thinking about it in the context of how we think about it from a fixed income perspective, not only do we care about where inflation is, but we ultimately the impact on interest rates. Where will interest rates likely be? Right. And and this is where we get back to this notion, at least in our space right now, which is what are the greatest risks facing investors today as it relates to fixed income and specifically cash to a lesser to a meaning, more meaningful extent. The greatest risk we believe to investors today is not duration risk. It's not the rising of interest rates. It is reinvestment rate risk. Right. It is the risk that interest rates are materi materially lower a year from now than they are today, which is not priced into short durations assets right. at the moment right right that's in it's priced into longer duration assets but not short duration assets so investors who have large exposures to preferred savings vehicles cash savings accounts cds there it's going to be a rude awakening in a year from now when they're they're comfortable currently today in a five and a quarter five and a half percent yield environment where yields are likely to be 100 basis points lower and now you're not getting five and a quarter five and a half now you're getting four and a quarter four and a half right and yet in our market on the muni side we're investing at four and a half percent tax-free yields today, or taxable equivalent yields of almost eight percent. Right. So, in in terms of the the risk reward opportunity that we're seeing right now, to your original question, are munis a buy? We would say definitively they are, just based on yield alone. Right. The yield alone that we're delivering on a taxable equivalent basis is consistent with an equity-like return, and rates don't have to go anywhere from here to do it to get you any a better return. And yet, if yields are going to be falling, you can have a substantially positive return on top of the yield that you're getting. So therefore, we're expecting there's a real probability that you'll have significant double-digit returns in fixed income and munis in particular. Okay, so I want to stay on this, right? So especially for my audience, when I hear you say long duration or in, in intermediate third term duration or, or low duration, what we're saying is how far you go out with a particular fixed income investment. So if you go out 20 years plus, that's considered long duration. And when your long duration and interest rates go down, you can really profit from that in terms of price of your bond going up, plus you're receiving the interest from that. And what you're, and what you're suggesting is that municipal bonds are a buy today because it's very high probability that inflation will be lower six months, 12 months from now. And because of that, we could be at peak Fed. And when I say peak Fed, meaning that the Fed could be done raising interest rates. And if that's the case, you can lock in today going out 10 years, 15 years at these yields that you just quoted, right? Four, four and a quarter, federally tax-free, partially state, depending on where you live, which gives you at a taxable equivalent for some people, 
who are in high tax brackets, 7%, 8% plus. Is that an accurate statement? That's exactly well well said. Better said okay. than maybe even I could have said it. All right. So so now that we painted that picture, which is really, really helpful, and I told and I actually agree with you, right? And and the thing I try to educate a lot of people on, this was even back when I started my career, 2000, 2003, four, when yields were sort of where we are today, is people are locking in six month CDs getting five percent, one one year CDs getting five percent. And people look at it like, oh, for six months I'm getting five percent, that's a great return. Or one year I'm getting five percent, that's a great return. And obviously that's annualized. Mm-hmm. But what they forget is well, if you can go out and lock in five year at five percent taxable, or even if it's if, if tax free seem to work out based on if you're in a high tax bracket, and you get a taxable equivalent on tax freeze of what we just talked about six, seven, eight percent, because the reinvestment risk becomes higher now. Because if rates are going to go down, then when that six month CD comes due, and you lo- now you can only lock in at four or three and a half when you could have continued to receive 5% on that CD going out five years, for example, or or 4.5, whatever it's yielding today. I mean, that's the opportunity cost that people don't realize. And that's really, really important. So what I want to do is, so appreciate what you said about where you feel rates are going. I want to push back a little bit though and see what your thoughts are, right? Here are my concerns about yields. My concern about yields are number one, the supply issue that, we are seeing and going to see in terms of quantity of treasuries that's going to be coming due over the next, 31% of treasuries are going to be coming due over the next 12 months. So supply, number one. Number two, lack of foreign buyers. And then finally, number three, perception of downgrade of credit risk. Right, so those three components, is it possible that this next time go around, if we do enter into recession, which I'd love to talk to you more about that after this, is it possible that the dynamics with yields are different this time around because of what I just said, which means that maybe we're wrong about peak Fed, maybe we're wrong about rates and rates can move higher from here. So, um, so to answer your question directly, it's absolutely possible. The question becomes whether it's likely. Um, and that's the challenge, right? And as we think about it in the context of history, there's a couple, there's important data points that we use that we follow from a historical perspective that give us confidence that those outcomes, while possible, are not likely. Um, the first important one, I think, is that if you think about it in the context of the important signal that a Fed rate pause is, um, let's go back in history and I'll give you a data point for you. Over the course of all rate hikes, rate hiking cycles ever in the history of the United States, how often has the Fed, Federal Reserve subsequently raised rates again after pausing twice consecutively? The answer, the $64,000 question is never. They have never raised rates again ever in history when you've had two back-to-back Fed rate pauses. So concerns about further rate hikes, um, we wouldn't say they're unfounded, Having said that, the reason why we think it's unlikely is because there's a reason why the Fed has paused twice. They are concerned, and appropriately so, that they have gone too far. It is evident in what they're starting to see in payrolls. It's evident what we're seeing in the CPI data. It's evident in the 19 consecutive declines in leading economic indicators, which have been correlated with recession 100% of the time historically. the commodities decline that we have seen in commodity prices uh, is among the greatest ever in history, going back to the early 60s. Never in history have we ever seen a decline in commodity prices to the extent that we have from the peak to where we are now and not seen a recession. 
So this notion that we will not see a recession this time, we believe is, while hopeful, unlikely. We are likely to see a recession. Will it be severe? Unlikely to be severe. We think it will be more moderate and more cyclical recession. Um, and I, I thought it was an interesting and clever way of framing the discussion. Somebody said recently that by middle to end of next year, the soft landing and the and an actual recession in the economy will feel very similar, <laughs> which which is code for we're going to have a recession, right? And we're going to call it a soft landing, but yeah. it's still going to be a recession. And that's the issue. We're, there's nothing wrong with it, right? It's a natural progression of cycles. And what we need to understand and prepare for is, well, what happens to other asset classes during recessions? We know what does well during recessions. Right. High quality fixed income does well. That is treasuries. High quality fixed income also includes munis because it's a very safe asset class. So again, we're fairly highly convicted that rates are going to stay where they are, if not head lower over time. That is why the treasury market and the muni market with it have rallied so dramatically. I mean, this past month, that we're not done yet, but November so far year to date, pardon me, month to date, is the second best monthly performance ever in the history of the municipal bond market on a total return basis going back to 1994, right? So we're talking about a very meaningfully positive month. You might ask yourself, well, what was the number one best performing month in the history of the municipal bond market back to 1994? Happened to be November of 2022, last year. Wow. We saw almost the exact same episode. So it's it's pretty interesting to see what's happening right now. This time, we believe that the market has gotten it right, that the Fed is likely done raising rates. We've likely seen the peak in rates. And so therefore, for investors like your clients who might be thinking about, is this the right time to start extending out of my cash, maybe a large cash position that you have, or adding to my fixed income mm-hmm. exposure, that it might be the right time, we would argue it is. So again, to push back on, on, on our, our analysis of, as far as yields lower, we've had fiscal spending during a situation where the Fed is cutting, right? Which I don't think we've ever pretty much never ever seen before, right? We have fiscal spending. Usually you have fiscal spending during a situation where we're entering into recession or we're in a recession. So this fiscal spending that we've seen this year and we're probably going to see next year, I mean, is it possible that that can stop inflation from going to 2% and cause maybe inflation to get reignited and keep the and keep us out of the recession completely. Well, I think it really comes down to and it's a bit of a philosophical discussion about what you or we believe was the primary cause for inflation. Was inflation a result of increased demand? or was it really uh, generated by a fairly severe supply chain disruption or both? And what we end up finding, it was the latter, right? It was a it was a significant seizure in the supply chains across the entire right. globe, as well as the United States and almost every other developed country giving money to folks to go out and spend through stimulus, uh, specifically checks for the US in particular, spend to spend money on items that didn't exist right there simply wasn't enough supply to satisfy the demand now we're seeing the reverse of that right we're seeing supply chains have largely healed if you're looking at the 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 baltic dry goods index which is really raw materials which is another data point that we follow it's down almost 80 percent year over from its highs right if you look at lumber if you look at oils in a bear market if you look at 
um, uh, specifically the the components of the CPI, which are going to be driven by the, the raw materials as well to a certain degree, what you're seeing is moderation, right? And that moderation is because we're seeing su- significant healing of supply chains. Having said that, we're also seeing, seeing a runoff of in, a, in, a, in the U.S. economy, and I would say consumers running out of um, available savings that they accumulated during the pandemic, right? And right. if you look right. at it, I saw a statistic this morning, which is a little alarming. It said that, and this is a Fed survey that stated that individuals are currently the number of individuals on a percentage basis that do not have two thousand dollars in the event of an emergency is the highest ever going back to the early 90s, I believe it. right? I believe, so, it. I believe it. Yeah. That's that's what we're starting to recognize. You're seeing it in credit card delinquencies, um, clearly the, the above where they were now going back to prior to the pandemic, which, oh, by the way, prior to the pandemic, we were already re, you know acceler- decelerating in terms of economic growth, which a lot of people forget. Um, and so those are important data points. The other one we follow closely is subprime auto de- uh, delinquencies. That's been very high. The highest ever in recorded history right now, yeah. right? And those are... Those are not good data points. I mean, that's just reality. It just shows you the state of things that, that, that we know that, and we've been expecting this for a while, that the um, the the forbearance on student loan debt when it stopped was going to have a material impact on what we call the fun and game segment of the market. That is the economy. It's travel, entertainment, leisure, uh, restaurants, you know, all the things that a lot of that money was being spent on. There's just less money to spend on it now. So, Andrew, the idea of a recession, right, which almost is getting nauseating to even, to even talk about, right? So we we came into this year and, you know, we've been in the camp of a you know, recession happening in 2023 after the second half, right, of this year obviously did not happen. The consensus was recession going into this year, which was the, the biggest issue I had with talking about a recession. But I felt convicted because of what the Fed was doing with raising rates as quickly as he's, he, he did that a recession would happen. Now, a recession did not happen. In fact, we've had a print last month of GDP of 4.9%. This month, you know, this quarter, uh, when we saw the print, it was 4.9%. This quarter, it's looking around, based on federal land and GDP number, we're looking at between 1% and 2%. Right. Why hasn't a recession happened? It's a great question. We were of the same view that you were and your team was in the context of what our expectations were for economic growth. Uh, what we got wrong, candidly, was the degree of fiscal stimulus that was going to be um, coming into the economy, specifically in the third quarter, right? And also the pulling forward of uh, of manufacturing, specifically in the auto industry. I mean, to give the credit to the auto manufacturers, they clearly anticipated there would be a strike. And so they pulled a lot of their manufacturing, which normally would have occurred later, into the, th- the second quarter, second and third quarter for that matter, really the third quarter. So a lot of the economic activity that largely would have been later in the year has actually been pulled forward in the earlier in the year. Now we're expecting that to decelerate, which is partly why you're starting to see the GDP data for the fourth quarter, which has historically been a very strong period of growth for the U.S. economy, is going to be decidedly weaker, right? So, um, and then the question becomes, what is this? What is the catalyst to continue economic growth in Q1 and Q2? Well, candidly, if if we're running out of these the both the stimulus as well as um, excess savings, there really isn't a catalyst, right? And if you look at what's happening globally, there isn't another economy currently that's doing better that's likely right. to pull us up, 
right? If you look at what's happening in China, they're clearly slowing. If you look at what's happening in Germany, they're in recession. If you look at what's happening broadly across the Euro, um, um, Euroland itself, it's it's they're experiencing what we're experiencing to a greater extent. Their slowdown is even greater. UK, same scenario. So everybody seems to be on a correlated downward trend right now. And the question now becomes, what's likely to reverse that? The only thing that's likely to reverse that is a very proactive central bank that is going to be cutting interest rates materially. And they have promised us, they've promised everyone that we are going to be higher for longer. They're going to keep rates high until they right. see the whites of the inflation eyes back to or substantially back to their 2% target, which means we're several months away from them even considering cutting interest rates. But what will change that will likely be actual economic data that shows there's material weakening and not until then. I mean, I also look at it like the reason why we didn't have a recession this year is I just feel like COVID and the imbalances that of that and the various acts that were that were passed, right? The Inflation Act, et cetera, the CHIPS Act pushed everything out. So timing was was difficult. And obviously GDP numbers were pretty good and forecast to be good in fourth quarter, but perhaps this is just being pushed out. And what I find interesting is consensus is now more for a, a soft landing or no landing, right? So I feel like what's going to happen is what happened this year going into it. Consensus was recession. We had no recession. Now consensus is no landing, soft landing. And in 2024, listen, when I look at the data and I look at, you know, all of my notes, I keep on saying this, you know, I just think it's a miracle if we don't enter recession in 2024. So, but let me ask you this though, is it possible that we already had a recession and we're going through a rolling recession? We've been going through a rolling recession as Ed Yardini has talked about. No, I think that is possible. I think you are seeing it. The question is whether all those rolling recession recessions at some point coalesce around a broader one. Right. And and I think and it's always interesting to us. Right. We're students of the market just like you are and your team is. Right. Um, we're following the data just like you do. And we look at history over time. And I think it's remarkable, it, literally remarkable to us that everybody collectively, a large proportion of the financial services industry is talking about soft landings, which by definition means avoiding recession. Right. Which to us is 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 a, a little wild when you think about it in the context of why. Why would we ever be able to, why would we be able to avoid recession when we've never been able to do it except for one time in history, right? And that was with the Greenspan Fed who was proactively cutting interest rates when he had already known that he had raised rates too fast. Right. That is not this Fed. So, so the folks out there who are hopeful, right? Literally hopeful that we avoid recession, we don't believe are realistic, right? They're just simply not looking at history they're, and they're really not considering the likelihood that things will likely get worse before they get better. And then finally, I just want to leave you with the last question. Explain to the audience the sweet spot of the yield curve, what that means, and where is the sweet spot of the yield curve when buying municipal bonds? Yeah, great question. Uh, certainly great question considering the timing. Uh, in the treasury market, you know, if you look at the yield curve, the curve is still inverted twos to tens, still inverted twos to thirties. In the muni market, however, twos to thirties, the muni curve is steeply sloped, almost hundred basis points sloped between really? twos and thirties, right? So munis in the muni market is largely dislocated from the treasury market for a couple of reasons, which I'll speak to, but it's important to note that even though the muni curve is positively sloped between twos and thirties, 
it's inverted between twos and tens specifically. You get lower yield on a 10-year bond right. than you get on a two-year bond. Two-year. Which in and of itself speaks to the inefficiency, speaks to the opportunity for investors to barbell their strategy, having exposure shorter duration position and having exposure to longer duration position, thereby underweighting the belly of the curve that's inverted. Because when the curve normalizes, the positions on the curve that are likely to underperform, that is provide the less the least amount of return and income over the period of time where that normalization occurs is likely those areas of the curve that's currently inverted. So i.e three to 10 year bonds, which is where a lot of investors in passive strategies tend to be overweight. So from that perspective, the peak spots on the curve right now are not the areas that investors are used to thinking about, which is three years, four years, five years, 10 years. It's really 10 to 15 years and it's the two year, right? And so that's what we're doing for our clients right now is that barbelled strategy where we're taking longer duration exposure because you're getting paid for it right? You extend duration and you pick up yield in the mini market. That doesn't exist in the treasury market. The reason why it exists in minis is because retail investors tend to think myopically about when they need their money back. That is when they want their bonds to mature and what the absolute yield is. And they're not thinking about it on an opportunistic basis in terms of what's going to deliver the best return for me over the next 12 months, over the next 24 months. And hopefully that's what the benefit of an active manager not just ourselves, but others bring the ability to follow that nuanced inefficiency in the mini market and to be able to determine, hey, today is the best spot on the curve might be, let's say, the 14 year, but six months from now, it might be the 10 year or it might be the 20 year. Um, that's going to change over time, but that's really where the opportunity persists today. And right now, the beauty is for investors who are thinking about committing assets today is that largely the retail investor who has been a big has the largest percentage participation in the mini market either through mutual funds or individual smas or individual accounts they build on their own they're largely out of the market uh, when it comes to mutual funds they're still not contributing to their mutual funds we're still seeing outflows from open-end municipal bond funds on the other hand for investors like ourselves as a separately managed account manager we're seeing record inflows why because investors are taking advantage of the environment right now to harvest losses, either in their mutual funds or in their passively managed portfolios, they, they can apply to gains in the future. The beauty of the mini bond, of owning an individual mini bond, is if the dollar price on that bond drops because interest rates have risen, we know that over time it's going to accrete back to par once the bond matures. So that, that paper loss, if you will, will go away over time. However, if you harvest that loss today and buy another bond that's similar in nature, credit quality, coupon, structure, maturity, but harvest the loss, you'll get the same appreciation over time in the bond you swap into, but you've got a, a loss that you can now apply and it's been captured toward the gain on that bond or somewhere right. else in your asset allocation. Right, right. Great, great, great. Awesome, Andrew. As always, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. You always do a great job articulating your view and opinions and perspectives, and we appreciate it very much. We appreciate all you do for our clients. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. Take care.